a guy that I used to work with at Hodinki actually used to say that slow change is better than no change. And I really believe in that. And I think a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, well, you don't work with Rolex or Rolex is not online or how come you haven't done so? And so it's like, look, like we're not in this to flip this business and make a bunch of money. We're in this to build something that matters for the long term. And Houdinki is 15 years old, right? I mean, like our, our air quotes competitors that are out there now, with the exception of Chrono 24, are less than four years old, right? So like you've got guys that came into the space back basically because of the COVID boom. And we were doing this in 2008. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Today's guest is none other than Ben Clymer, chairman and founder of Hodinkee. As someone whose background and company need no introduction, I figured we could dive right into all things collecting, both watches and cars. See, Ben's been around the block a few times, and it's easy to not get jaded. So what's keeping Ben interested these days is what I really wanted to know. We talk about the grail talking watches guests and why it's not just about being a collector, but having the passion to do so. Of course, we dive into his passion for car collecting and his elusive, one of only nine, Porsche Zagato 356s. We also talk about the coach builder themselves and why they are so sought after and important, especially in the collector market. A recent father of two, Ben's collecting looks a tad bit different these days. Still chasing the same things for himself, but two little ones as well. All in good taste. All right, let's get into it. This is Ben Clymer for Collector's Gene Radio. Ben Clymer, what an honor to have you on today. Oh, thank you. That, that's very, very, very far too kind, but I, I appreciate that. Happy to be here. So we're going to chat all things cars and watches, of course, today. So just to give everyone a little bit of a taste of what's going on in your life today, what car is coming out of the stable and what's on the wrist? Believe it or not, nothing is on the wrist right now because I'm in my office and I'm just kind of like toiling away at, at a laptop. But I'm in front of me, and this is not a plant in any way, I have a, a white gold Rolex GMT that I bought in 2015, my first modern Rolex. I have a white gold Speedmaster 3861 that I bought for my son when he was born this year. I have a 3940G, which is was and is the first Patek I ever bought for myself when I graduated from journalism school. My wife now wears it. And I have a 5170P Tiffany dial. Uh, that's probably my, my go-to in terms of my, uh, Patek, my modern Pateks. So again, nothing on the wrist, but those four watches on my desk, truly. And uh, car, I, I'm driving, uh, I drive a Taycan Cross Turismo as my, my daily car these days. Love it. Can't beat that. Can't beat that for sure. So your name and Hodinki are going to be no stranger to the listeners here and not to make you do any more storytelling of the brand. So I'll just give a little brief description. You started Hodinki as a hobby in the early days of the 2008 financial crisis. Things take off. And from there, with a lot of amazing accomplishments in between, you launched an e-commerce site. You became an online authorized dealer, which was completely unheard of at the time launched a series called Talking Watches with the likes of John Mayer, Kevin Hart, Adam Levine, and some of the watch world's biggest names like John Goldberger, who I've had on this podcast before. Reference points with the mutual friend Eric Wind, which takes historical watches and references that have iterated over the last few decades. And you kind of talk through the evolution and you've obviously done a lot more, but this is all really culminated in what Hodinkee is now really being a leader in the watch publication and e-commerce world. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I, I appreciate that. I mean, that that was a pretty pretty tight synopsis on on the last fifteen years. But it's been it's been an amazing journey. Uh, I mean, as you said, I, th- this was built out of passion and love, and and still is, and, and hard work for that matter. Uh, still working very hard, much to my chagrin, um, and much to the disbelief of many of our readers. Uh, you know, but still still grinding away after fifteen years, and it's it's been an amazing journey. I mean, I, I think you know the idea of discussing watches in this case in a way that felt really matter of fact, and really, I mean, a term that I guess I use for, for what, what I do at Hodinkee and, and elsewhere at this point is, is almost like a middle-class mindset. And, and I say that 
lovingly, not begrudgingly at all. I came from a really middle-class background and certainly not impoverished in any way, and but certainly not opulent in any way either. Both my parents were effectively public school teachers. And I found that that narrative and that understanding of things, of luxury things, in this case, watches, resonated with people in a way that was really special, if I may say, in particular for the, for the time. Uh, you know, luxury in 2008 was, was, in watches anyway, was dominated by China. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of listeners here would probably be surprised to hear that in many ways, you know, because a lot of a lot of the guys and gals that are into watches now are, are really quite young. They don't remember when gyro turbions with pave dials and, 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 and rubies on the bezel and everything were the thing. Um, you know, the, the, the American watch consumer was incredibly uneducated. I mean, really like they were buying Rolex and that's it, you know, Tag Heuer's and Longines and things like that, which were, you know, kind of more mass market luxury. Now everyone knows what Patek Philippe is, which, and RAP. I mean, people used to call Audemars Piguet, Audemars Piaget. They thought the two brands were one and the same. <laughs> uh, that was not long ago. It still um, happens. Exactly. And so, you know, th- this kid from upstate New York being myself a- approaching it with a, uh, somewhat academic, kind of mindset and but certainly more approachable mindset in terms of you know storytelling and then putting it all online and broadcasting it out was if I may say I think really different for for the time and I think that's what really brought people to the site in the early days which was simply just like a guy who loved the stuff couldn't afford shit uh, but just loved it and had a different approach to what watches were at the time vintage watches I mean my god vintage watches in 2008 were nothing I mean no I, I mean really nobody covered them nobody cared at all I used to go to auctions at an auction house called Antiquorum, which is not even in business in the U.S. anymore. It is in Switzerland. And it would be me and like three dealers. And that's it. You know, and it like nobody cared at all. I mean, it was just a totally different world. And, you know, I I don't want to be one of these like old guys, like kind of like yelling from my front porch at all the youngins out there. But they really have no idea how how small of an industry this was when when Hodinkee got started. Can imagine. So when you first started Hodinkee, what were you collecting back then versus what you're collecting now in terms of watches. Yeah, I mean, look, I wasn't collecting anything before I started hurting because I had no money. You know, I mean, I was a kid. Uh, I was in my early 20s, you know, just trying to, you know, take my then girlfriend out to a nice meal every now and then buy a nice bottle of wine or some weed or something like that, you know, and just like, <laughs> yeah. pay my rent. And that, that was it. There was no collecting at all. I, I had one nice watch that my grandfather had given me, which is the Omega Speedmaster that is, you know, kind of, I would imagine, you know, no stranger to, to the audience here. And then believe it or not, I bought a Maurice Lacroix at Torno uh, on interest or with no interest rather of, or, of a payment plan. And that was about it. So I had one dress watch and one kind of sports watch and, and that was it. But collecting was not even a word that I could conceive of at that time. It was really just understanding stuff. And so I approached the site and I approached my own collecting as wanting to understand everything in place of wanting to buy everything because buying everything was impossible. I couldn't afford anything. Like, you know, so the idea of like owning more than one of anything was impossible to, to, to conceive of. Um, so really, there was no collecting. Uh, there was just, you know, hoping to buy stuff here and there and, and be able to pay my rent. And, uh, you know, if I had to go to the hospital or to the doctor, that I could pay for it. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> Love it. Vintage uh, Universal Genève and Longines are, are two brands in categories that you have on record expressed fondness for. But do you ever hit a point with, some of these brands in terms of collecting where you're satisfied with the ones that you've collected from those brands or does the search always continue? Yeah, it, I mean, everything works in cycles. And I think I've been, I've been doing this a long time and my exposure to watches has been immense. I mean, really, it was hyperexposure, overexposure for a long time. Right, you've seen everything. Yeah, just about, or at least, you know, been around a lot of it. And, you know, like, like, you know, like others might be with cars or clothes or whatever, you kind of get jaded at a certain point. And I would say from 2008 to 2021, I was pretty jaded. I was, I'm sorry, 2018 to, to, to 2021. So about three or four years. I was just like, man, I just don't care. <laughs> you know, I really just don't <laughs> yeah. care. Uh, you know, I cared about my business and that's what kind of got me going. But the idea of like sp- chasing watches, vintage watches in particular, which, you know, is really a savage industry at best was just not compelling to me. And I just, you know, I think I just needed to kind of take a break from from that side of things. I went off Instagram for three solid years, three full years, which was great for for my mental health and physical health, and kind of came back with fresh mind, fresh, fresh eyes, fresh heart, when I was able to step down as CEO and approach the business from a much more enjoyable perspective, which is where I am today, which is I'm, I'm the chairman of the business, 
I still work incredibly hard for Houdinki. I'm in content. I'm on content. I'm making stuff happen all day, every day. But it's not running the business. And running a business is not fun uh, unless you're one of those people that loves it. Uh, I am not. I, I, I love running a small business and building a business. But running one is a different, different thing completely. But having said that, like I've circled around and started buying some watches that I loved and had to sell in the early days. Uh, I just bought a 14270 Blackout Explorer, uh, which was my first Rolex ever. Yeah, I was looking at a 6240, which I've owned three or four of and currently don't own anymore. Um, so, you know, some some vintage Rolex here and there, some vintage Patek that I've owned and sold. I'm into some independent stuff. I'm into Lange, Lange rather, and, and Patek, Acrivia, of course. You know, th- there's a lot of stuff that I'm into, but in terms of, you know, the stuff that I've owned a, a lot of, I mean, I've owned seven Paul Newmans, you know, and it's just like, do, do I, I do I own any now? I do not. Um, and it's just like, okay, if somebody came to me with an original owner, six two three nine box papers, like Dead Mint, would I would I consider? It? Yeah, of course I would. But the pricing is is another thing. And again, I don't want to sound like some old fart here, but you know, the idea of paying three plus for a six two three nine Paul Newman is insane. I mean, I have very clear recollections of when they were eighty five. I have even more clear recollections of when they were 125 because that's what I paid for the one that I had. Um, you know, and it's just like, it, it's just hard for me to to justify that in a life where I have children and a mortgage and and other things that that, that go on. But to be clear, I still buy a lot of watches. It's just things that, that excite me now uh, versus the things that excited me 10, 10 years ago. Do you ever click? iterations of the same watch or are you kind of a one of each no, type? No. Sort? I, I mean, I, I'm a total completionist. So, I mean, I had, at one point I had six 25, 26 <laughs> uh, I had, uh, I had three different reference of Paul Newman's at one point, six, two, three, nine, six, two, four, one, six, two, six, three, Mark one. I had double Swiss underline black. I had double Swiss non-underline white. I had six, two, four, Oh, small Daytona, like kind of normal one. I had a six, two, four, Oh, oyster, uh, the small oyster. Yeah, no, I am very much like a completionist and I, I do like to collect in sets. So yeah, I, you know, yes, uh, 100%. And you know, that's not to say those sets always, uh, last a long time, but the idea of being able to collect in themes and when you buy things that are similar in terms of age and stylistically, et cetera, such as like a 6239 double Swiss underline, which was like a, a 923 serial, and then you have a, a 6239 double Swiss non-underline, which is a 922 serial, you begin to realize that, okay, like the non-underlines are actually earlier than the underlines. And that that becomes really fun and engaging uh, for me. But yeah, no, I've, I, I do collect in, in sets for sure. You've talked a lot about where you're at in your collecting now in terms of, you know, the nonsense that comes with vintage watches, like just buy from the original owner if you can and, and you can afford it. And, and that's kind of where you're at. And I'm curious because, you know, a lot of vintage watches hold attributes like lacquer or enamel in which they can certainly crack over time if they haven't already. Is that an attribute that you stay away from, even if it's from the original owner or not? I don't think so. I mean, like I, look, I mean, I'm, I'm cognizant, you know, <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, I mean, I can tell you, like, I was offered a really nice 6240 uh, that had some loom loss at the nine o'clock hour mar- minute marker or hour marker. Uh, I It had some loom loss in the hands, et cetera. And I was like, oh, man, like, I, I don't, like, it, it was coming from a dealer. And I was just like, it's just like, from a dealer, I want it to be perfect, you know? Because I don't know, and this was a good dealer, but I don't know what happened to that watch. If, it, if that watch had come from the original owner of that watch, I probably would have bought it because I would have believed it, you know? The rest of the watch was air quotes unpolished, had a perfect so-and-so, the bezel was perfect, blah, blah, blah. And so for me, it's just about, it's the full package, you know? Buying from a dealer is totally cool and I do it all the time. But with that, I, I do have a higher expectation of what it should be. And then from buying from an original owner, I'm much more susceptible or much more open to, to buying things of, I don't want to say lesser quality, but quality that is uh, more organic and, and, and more earnest in my eyes uh, from an original owner because I know they're not like, most times, a, a private has no idea how to manipulate a watch to make it more valuable. With dealers, they do. And that I've, I've seen that even from the air quotes good guys. I see that all the time. And uh, that, that just has always rubbed me the wrong way. To the point like where vintage watches, again, like I just, it's not fun. It's not fun for, for a lot of people. And it's just like, you know, some of my favorite watches, 2526, 6239, the watch like Universals, things I keep mentioning, I adore as objects. But I don't feel the need to spend my money on them now when I you know, have personal relationships with 
brand representatives at, at brands that I love and can get stuff that is made for me or allocated to me. Uh, you buy it at retail, you know, it's good. It's your watch. I think the other thing of like buying vintage watches to celebrate life moments, I've always found strange, you know, it's just like, I want a watch to be mine if it's going to celebrate the birth of a child or a wedding or, or whatever. I think that's a, a really, really odd habit that has been pushed by dealers completely, you know, to, to buy somebody else's old thing for, to celebrate your life moment feels really odd. Uh, but look, I'm not, I'm not going to knock, knock people that have done it. Of course. It just doesn't connect with me at all. It really doesn't. And so, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm a modern watch guy. As I said, the most recent watch I bought was a 30 year old Rolex, but you know, I'd say more watches than not these days I'm buying are are modern. So collecting in general is obviously a very broad term. It can be interpreted and is interpreted differently by each individual. But one of the ongoing projects that you have at Hodinkee are the limited editions with some of the biggest names in the watch industry. In fact, there's probably very few that you haven't worked with at this point. There's a few, but yeah, we're, we're doing okay. You're doing pretty darn good. What are your thoughts on the idea that everyday consumers like you and I collect the collaborations that you've done with other brands? I mean, hum- humbling for sure. You know, th- there's a lot of guys out there, you know, the John Mayers of the world that are like objectively special, right? Like they're, they're, talented, like immense, obvious talent. When you see John on stage, he's a different guy, right? Different guy. That, a different guy, for sure, in a, in a million ways. There are other guys out there that, that are less obvious than a mayor, but more obvious than me, that are they're really special and talented as well. Uh, you know, I have always prided myself on, you know, kind of like really, really listening more than speaking. And if you see me on Instagram or whatever, like I, you know, I post, but I, I'm not like, I'm not, projecting my beliefs onto other people verbally, whereas other people do. You know, people are on YouTube screaming about stuff and people on Instagram saying they're going to slap people and all that. Legit screaming. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's just just not me. It it never was and never will be. Like, the way that I communicate my belief system is through objects and and through what we do with Hodinkee. Uh, And so you've seen a lot of what I believe in, in the product that, that we've created over the years, whether it would be the, the stainless steel corn de vache Vacheron, which is one of my favorites, which back then you have to remember, nobody was doing those type of high-end complications in steel. I mean, nobody, including Vacheron for that matter. Yeah, I mean, to even get Vacheron to agree to do that in steel is pretty impressive. That was a, that was a long time coming, for sure. The Omega stuff, the IWC stuff, the two Leicas that we've done, the Hermes products that we've done. You know, to, in, in many ways, like I think one of my greatest skill sets or one of my greatest gifts is the ability to work within incredibly rigid confines of traditional luxury Hermes as an archetype of that or Leica or whoever. And, and I wouldn't say convincing the, the, the top management or convincing the brand that there's value in doing something different and outside the box, but working within their, their ways while pushing things. And I think it's really easy to say, oh, they just changed the dial color. But People who say that have never worked for one of these companies. You have no idea how challenging it is and how much validation is required to get Leica to make a camera that was inspired by your old Rolex or whatever, you know? To put the name of a air quotes watch blog on a Leica, you know, an, an M10 or a Q2. And I think, you know, we're, we're very good at, at kind of like respecting those that came before. And you never hear us speak ill of, of any other people in the watch space or, or outside while pushing things forward. And, and, and a guy that I used to work with at Hodinki actually used to say that slow change is better than no change. And I really believe in that. And I think a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, well, you don't work with Rolex or Rolex is not online or how come you haven't done so-and-so? It's like, look, like we're not in this to flip this business and make a bunch of money. We're in this to build something that matters for the long term. And Hodinki is 15 years old, right? I mean, like our, our air quotes competitors that are out there now, with the exception of Chrono 24, are less than four years old, right? So like you've got guys that came into the space back, basically because of the COVID boom. And we were doing this in 2008, you know? So it's just, it's a really different mindset uh, of how we approach this industry and how we approach everything. Like, you know, things ebb and flow. We work with brands this year, not next year, but like we think in five-year schemes, you know? And I think the best brands in the world also think in, in that type of, of macro level schemes. You mentioned John Mayer and, you know, for me, talking watches is the easiest way to get my non-watch friends into watches, especially John Mayer videos and people that they can also relate to. And then they're like, oh, I, I get it now. And I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but is there a dream talking watches guest? I mean, I'm sure you probably never even fathomed some of the guests that you've had on to this day, but I mean, I would have to assume, you know, like a Clapton 
is a dream guest and and that sort of stuff. You know, in many ways, Clapton was the first John Mayer. And, I, you know, John has been, you know, and he would admit, certainly, like, you know, really influenced by, by Eric Clapton. How could you not be if you're in, in that space? You know, from the VisVim stuff to the Rolex and Patek to obviously music. Um, Clapton would be up there for sure. Uh, I've never met him. Um, you know, we, we know many of the same people. Never met him. Um, you know, I, I don't know how into watches he is these days. You know, I mean, he, he was incredibly into watches, you know, but that was 20 years ago. And I think like that, that's something to, to remember that like, you know, I mean, look, we're, we're very blessed in that there's not a single guest on talking watches that we've ever paid or given anything to, to appear on the show. They want to do it, but Clapton's an older guy now. And I think had, had Hodinkee existed in 2020, I'm sorry, in, in 2001, 2003. Yeah. I think it's really likely he would have been on the show. I think now he's older, we're older. I, I think just the, you know, the, the windows didn't kind of overlap, so to speak. You know, Jay-Z, who I have met, is somebody that we would love to see just because his influence on everything is just so grand. He would be a dream for sure. One that, like, you can't not look up to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, I was talking with somebody the other day, and it's like, the Grandmaster Chime Patek is objectively a challenging-looking watch, (laughs) you know, from from an aesthetic point of view. That's a very diplomatic way to put it yeah exactly um but you know i, I love the guys at patek so you know i want to hold hold these guys in high regard it's challenging looking there's that photo of him that was taken and we posted it so did others he makes it look fucking amazing you know and it's like only jay-z could do that like with respect to to my friends john and ed and people like that like i don't think they could do that you know jay-z in a tuxedo at the grammys wherever it was with a grandmaster chime like that is insane like that is so cool and, you know, we saw him get that 6'2", I'm sorry, yeah, 6263 Tiffany recently. Um, you know, he, he's buying these 5004s, like really good stuff. And I think the, the really compelling thing about him now versus kind of what he was into in the early days is that he's buying like real best in breed stuff, uh, as he should. Like he, de- he deserves that type of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Jay-Z would be really on the same level as a lot of the other guests that you've had on. And, you know, fingers crossed we get to see it one day for sure. Yeah, you never know. And like, and to be clear, like we are not talking to him. Like, this is not a plant for something that will come later. Uh, although, hopefully, it will. But you know, look, there, there's other guys out there. There's, you know, we just the one with Adam Levine, which is great. Uh, Mark Wahlberg has an insane collection. I mean, insane. That would be neat. Um, a lot of diamonds in there. Yeah, yeah. He, but he, man, is he into it? Like, he loves it real way. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, that you know, Jay Z, Clapton, those, those. Because the thing is, I know that those guys like really like it. There's a lot of guys out there that have a lot of great watches, but I don't know that they really like it, if that makes any sense. And so I think, you know, with with Jay and and Clapton, it it would be like an actual good conversation as well. Yeah, knowledgeable too, and kind of be able to to go punch for punch, I guess you could say. Yeah, and and I've been around it long enough. You know, like a lot of the guys that I meet socially that consider themselves great collectors because they have a 5711 and a 5167 and a fucking Daytona or whatever, like, They've been buying these watches for three years, like since COVID. Like it's it's just like they don't they don't know what they don't know. And there's nothing wrong with that. You gotta start somewhere. But like Jay-Z's been buying APs since two thousand and two. You know, like you think about that, like what were you doing in two thousand two? Like I was doing nothing, I can tell you that. So like the fact that and, and Pharrell, actually Pharrell would be a great one as well. I'd love to to talk to him about it. Cause Pharrell was buying APs, I think, in two thousand two, two thousand one. So, you know, those guys were doing this stuff so, so early in the grand scheme of things. It's kind of amazing. Let's talk about the idea of selling watches from the collection. You know, it's never easy, but sometimes you just have to do it. So for you, do you sell when you're just not wearing something or is it strictly when you're looking to make room for something incoming? It's a little bit of both. I mean, look, I, you know, as, as, as the audience may or may not know, I'm a married man, father of two, right? And like that, that changes your life precipitously, instantly. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're not selling our watches to pay our mortgage or anything like that, but like there is a reprioritization of your assets. And I don't think anybody here would be surprised to learn that I was pretty fucking heavy on watches as, as a single man <laughs> yeah. versus more traditional assets, et cetera. So, you know, a rebalancing of the the portfolio, so to speak, was, was warranted uh, when I got married and kind of matured into the, into the you know, ever uh, mature human being that I am now. But also it's it's just it's time. And I think like there are certain watches that I will never leave my collection because they mean so much to me. Some of them are vintage, to be honest. Some of them are not. Um, and then there are others that are just beautiful things. And I think the, the fun thing about vintage and secondary, you know, secondary market watches are that like, 
it's easier for me to buy them, wear them, enjoy them, and then sell them without feeling bad. I've never sold a watch that was allocated to me or given to me by anybody that that I knew. Uh, you know, I've never sold a watch that really I, I bought new, uh, effectively. I've sold a lot of vintage watches and I sold a lot of watches that I enjoyed for a few years and then you move on. But like with, with Rolex in particular, like you got enough money, you got enough time, you can find anything you want. You know what I mean? Like if, if you said, Hey dude, like find me a 6263 Oyster Paul Newman Tiffany sign. I can find you one guaranteed. Like you want a, 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 a first series 2499. I'll find you one. You know, like you got a few million bucks. Like it's, it, it's not that hard. I mean, I shouldn't say that it, it, it is hard to find a one worth buying that checks out in every way. But it's not that hard with vintage watches. Um, you know, everyone has a price and we've seen it, you know. And so, you know, if you are a man of man or woman of means, you can find it. And so there's never been something that I sold and then I immediately regretted or said, oh, shit, I'll never get it back. You know, enough money, enough time. You can get anything back you want, you know. And that, that's how I do it. That's how I think about it. And that's how I, uh, I decided to sell. And I think also, like, find, I mean, the price is one factor, of course, but also it going to the right people. Um, and I love, you know, I love them going, I've never sold a watch to a guy that I met on Instagram ever, even though people have offered to buy stuff. Uh, I, you know, I sold a watch recently to my neighbor up here, who's an older guy that's just not older, but you know, older than me, that's just getting into it. And he's just like, I want to buy a so-and-so, but like, I, I want to know that it's good. And I was like, look, if you want this, you can have it. I told him, I told him what I paid. I told him, you know, what it's worth. And like, we just, he says yes or no, that's it, you know? So, you know, it depends, but you know, like my 3940, which I'm looking at right now, is a watch I'll keep forever. It was my first Patek. Like I, I am a sentimentalist, I think much more so than people might imagine. Um, my Actually, the, the four watches on my desk, the GMT, the Speedy, the 3940, and the 5170, I would be shocked if any of them ever left uh, my, my life. Yeah, I, you know, me too. I've had a lot of watches come and go, but like right now I'm wearing a, a Patek 3796, Tiffany signed. Cool. Um, super fun watch and just such a sleeper in terms of, people passing it up based on the size, but it's, it's truly perfect. And I've had a lot of stuff ebb and flow through the collection. I've had watches come back, but this is truly one that I can't imagine letting go of. Yeah. And the, the idea of watches coming back, I mean, as I said, the last watch I bought was a 14270 blackout Explorer. You know, it's like, that was literally my first Rolex ever in 2007 or eight, something like that, probably eight. And it's just like, I've, I've loved Explorers. I've had a bunch of them. And, uh, you know, this one just like it felt right. And I've been wanting to rebuy that watch and now I have it and I wear it a lot. And it's, uh, it is fun buying stuff back. I would, I would definitely buy another steel screw down Daytona, non, non Paul Newman, like a, like a, a special 6263 or 6240. I would definitely buy an early 6239 again. I, I sold those. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, you find the right thing that gets you going and you're feeling good that day, you buy it. You know, it's, uh, it doesn't have to be some grand emotional, you know, kind of thought process. For sure. All right, let's chat cars for a bit. Over the years, uh, your love for cars has grown effectively more than ever. And it's no doubt that Porsche is a big love of yours. Would you say it's kind of the main focus in the collection? It's not the main focus. Porsche to me is Rolex, right? Like it is, it's the foundational brand. It's the brand on which everything else is based off of. A collection is based off of, right? I mean, like, you know, I have a Rolex right here. I have, you know, like just like my my daily car is a Porsche. Like they make objectively the best cars. There's like, I would, I would say that till the day that I die. That doesn't mean to say they make, they make the most emotionally compelling cars. So in terms of collectible cars, I've got the three the 356 Agato, which is kind of well-documented. The Wall Street Journal did a story on it. In terms of 911s right now, believe it or not, I don't have a 911 right now. I've got, I've got one on order, a 992. I've owned a bunch and would certainly buy more or buy another. Um, but right now, I, I'm enjoying Italian cars. I've, I've got uh, two Alfa Romeos that I really love. I have an old Ferrari that I really love. Um, I have an M1, BMW M1, uh, that is, you know, kind of a, German slash Italian car. Um, so I'm, I'm into slightly more obscure things right now, but I do really, really miss having great 911s. Uh, and they are for sure, you know, the, they're, they're, they're the Rolex Mariner of, of, of the car world. And I say that in a loving way. Let, let's talk about Zagato for a second, because I feel like it's such an important brand that gets brushed over a lot, especially if people just hear the word and they don't know anything about cars. So like you said, you've had the pleasure of being offered and owning uh, and still own one of the few Zagato 356s that they made. What is it about the coach builder that you love so much? 
Yeah, I mean, I just think I think it's important to like set the stage of what a coach builder is so that the readers or listeners rather really get it. A coach builder is somebody that would take a chassis and a motor of an existing product, in this case, a Porsche 356, and reshape the body completely. They would build the coach. And the coach is obviously going back to the stagecoach, et cetera, was the body of a train, then a body of a car. So Zagato was an Italian coach builder that was really kind of rose to prominence, although they, they date back to the 20s and 30s, they really rose to prominence in the 50s and 60s, making aluminum-bodied race cars for Porsche, Ferrari, uh, Maserati, Lancia, Alfa, et cetera. They are so special, so rare. Everything's in aluminum. Uh, in my opinion, much more uh, romantic and, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to say sexy because that feels like almost a little bit too basic, but like, you know, really romantic and charming and endearing and chaotic at times uh, than Pininfarina, than Touring, than, than a lot of the other coach builders. And they're rarer as well. Uh, so you have these incredibly emotional designs. And if you look at a TZ1 or a TZ2, which are two of my dream cars, uh, grail cars, like just show me a better looking thing on earth, right. whether it's a watch, <laughs> a person, a computer, a phone, you know, it's just like, just like, it just pulls emotion out of people. And Zagato has been able to do that in ways that, that very few other coach builders uh, have been able to do. Uh, so I, my, my first Zagato body car was a Lancia Flaminia Zagato that I bought from a friend in New York. And, uh, the car was a total dud as a car, but it looked incredible. Um, and I think that got me really hooked on what these special, special hand-built things are. And like, you know, there are coach-built Porsches. I, I have one of them now, which is kind of a funny story, but Porsches are, are not, they're kind of the opposite of that. I mean, I think in many ways, like a coach-built car is like a, you know, a handmade Patek Philippe from period versus a 911 or a 356, which is kind of like a Submariner from, from period. Again, both great objects, but really different things that appeal to different kinds of people at times. Um, so Zagato, uh, I had the Lancia, uh, the, the Porsche Zagato came into my life. I ordered it in 2015 or 16. I took delivery in 2019. So I've now had it for four years and I'm, I'm sitting at my desk, looking at my window and it's parked in my driveway. Uh, and anytime, anytime I look at my window and see that you can't, can't help but smile for sure. Yeah. It's, it's truly something special. I'll link up that article for sure, because it's definitely something that people should see and understand a little bit more versus just seeing a photo and maybe they'll do some research on Zagato because they're truly an extremely special brand with incredible history. Yeah, they're, they're, it's really, as you said, it's the, the brand is really neat. It, it, you know, had its ups and downs like, like anything. Like the, you're talking about a family-run business in, in a small suburb of Milan. Right. This is not Rolex or Patek. Like this is this is some some still kind of like, you know, small, small family stuff and incredibly charming, truly to this day. I mean, still, you know, if if someone said, you know, what would be one of your, you know, if you had unlimited budget, a 250 Ferrari by Zagato would be right up there for sure. So maintaining your watches is fairly easy, but obviously cars is a completely different beast. It's terrible. Yeah, You really have to tend to them almost full time. Is this a challenge for you in deciding to add something to the collection? The thing is, I'm such a child at, at heart that like, it, it's never a consideration when I buy the thing. It's a consideration as soon as I get the first bill and realize that I need like a tow truck to come get the car when I won't start. And, you know, it takes up half my day to go to the mechanic down 30 minutes away from here or whatever. They are painful to maintain uh, and expensive. And I mean, it really is, you know, there's no reason and no, no logic behind car collectors. I really believe that, you know, whereas like with watches, you can say, all right, I'll buy this Daytona retail. I'll, I'll sell it for whatever, 10 grand more like that. There's logic there, right? Like you don't even have to insure it if you don't want to. With cars, none of that is true, you know? Like, the, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but the fact that a, a Porsche dealer can charge an ADM is insane to me. Like that should be illegal in my eyes. Like you don't have, you don't have Wempy charging ADMs on, on Daytonas, you know? If they did, the market would be totally different and it makes no sense. And so, you know, the fact that like the car world is, is that is so challenging to, to make money in, honestly, not that I'm here for the money is just such a, it, it shows you like, it really weeds out a lot of people that like are kind of doing it for the, the wrong reasons that you get in watches because everyone thinks they can make money in watches. And kind of like going back to the idea of being jaded by seeing so many watches, you've obviously seen a lot of cars too, but it's different from when you can actually own the thing. Does that make cars and collecting them a little bit more attractive to you in terms of building 
the collection, whereas you've you've kind of done that several times over with watches. Yeah, look, I mean, the car thing is so fun because you can enjoy it with other people. You know, my wife and I will hop in my little Julieta Spider and go for a drive out to dinner or something. My my daughter, who's not even two, loves cars and she loves to sit in them and, you know, we'll just spin around the driveway or whatever, her little plastic car. So like, it's fun because it's appreciated by more people and that's really rewarding and you can use them, right? I mean, nobody needs a watch. Like the fact that I have four watches on my desk right now is ridiculous. Like I, you know, let alone what's, you know, at the bank. So it, it's a just, it's a more rewarding hobby in that like it's, it's a little bit more social than watches, I think. And, you know, I, I live upstate, there's cars and coffees up here very often that are really fun. And that, that's rewarding just to meet people that way. And they are really evocative and like they, they, they really pull emotion out of people that they don't know that they necessarily have. And that is, is always fun. Yeah. Even being a passenger, I mean, you get just a different feeling when it comes to, especially something vintage. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, my, my little Julieta spider, which is in the garage downstairs, like that, I mean, like I used to keep it in LA. I bought the car from a friend in Los Angeles and that car which costs less than an S-Class or, you know, a, you know, insert any G-Wagon for sure. You know, you drive that car around LA, you feel like you're James Dean and you're treated like James Dean. You know, like it really is such a special thing. And meanwhile, it's a four-speed with drum brakes and four-cylinder motor that probably puts out 95 horsepower. So it's not fast, but it's so rewarding to own and drive. And the experience that you get from owning it from other people is just remarkable. Is there a car out there you'd sell it all for? Uh, that I would sell it all for. It's tricky. So, I mean, like a lot of my cars have, have personal connections. The 356 we mentioned, my 330 GTC, I got married in, um, and did our honeymoon in. So that, that would be a challenging one to sell. But, you know, I, I think, you know, if there were a, a few cars out there that I would love to own that I would consider selling it all for a 275 Ferrari, uh, four cam, uh, ideally, or, or just a really great unrestored short nose. I had a 67 S911, which I consider to be one of the greatest cars ever made. There's one, I mean, like one specific car, 67S, that I really like that I would, you know, it's a very special one that I would consider buying, you know, at the expense of other things. I've never, believe it or not, never driven a 73 RS. From what I understand, that would be kind of an end game car for sure. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that I love, but, you know, the Ferrari stuff, it's a little bit like Patek. You know, it's just like when you're coming up and you don't have a dollar to your name, you're like, oh, who needs it? You know, how how good could Patek be? How good could Ferrari be? And then you experience it and you say, oh, wow, it really is that much better. It really is a different thing. And Ferrari, uh, modern Ferrari to a lesser degree, but vintage, you know, the Colombo V12s are just incredible. Yeah, they're bananas. They really are. And it's just like, again, like so emotional and so special in the hand-built nature of it. It's just different. Uh, just like a great Patek is is different than than other things. Yeah, like like you know, I mentioned I'm wearing this 3796, and it is a small time only dress watch, very small. And there's just something about it that is so incredible versus so many other dress watches that I have that you can't really explain. I, you can't explain it. You can't. I mean, it's look. I mean, AP makes great watches. Vacheron makes great watches. Long, uh, you know, there's lots of great watchmakers, but Patek is a special thing. And brand plays a big part in it, but like they got to being that brand by doing lots of things first, you know, and they, they still care to this day. Definitely. I want to take a moment to talk about another passion of yours, which is golf. And you've recently co-founded Fair Game Golf with none other than Adam Scott and a few others. Tell everyone what the plans are for Fair Game and what we have to look forward to there. So Fair Game is an app co-founded by myself, a friend of mine named Eric Mayville, and then Adam Scott, the the Masters winner from 2013 and great guy. Uh, The idea was to build a a digital home for golfers. And I think, you know, frankly, even in in a much more robust way than watches or cars, people that are obsessed with golf are obsessed with a capital O. They spend more time on it. They spend more money on it. They spend more, you know, more uh, brain power on it than any other hobby I've ever come across. And that includes watches and cars that we just spent the last, you know, 45 minutes talking about. And I was like, wow, there's really not a home for everyone to kind of like let their freak flag fly, so to speak. And so with Hodinkee, you can go on there and you can comment on everything. You can chit chat and bullshit, buy watches, do whatever all day long. That doesn't exist for golf. And so we wanted to build an app for free, basically. Uh, We paid for it, nobody else. Uh, We invested in it. That allows people to do that all day long, as well as connect with people so they can find more people like them. And when I got really into golf about five or six years ago, I had a little bit of time, a little bit of money. I knew some people and I found it still so hard to break into the golf scene in New York City or New York City area. And I was like, wow, if it's this hard for me, how hard must it be for like the normal guy, you know, the air quotes normal guy? 
And so we wanted to build an app that solved that. And so if you go on Fair Game now, you can get basically a handicap for free. You can find people and search people by location, by interest, by name. Uh, you can chat with people. You can comment on people's rounds. It's really a fun social app for, for golf. And it's it's early days, you know. Um, it's, you know, we're still, it's still bootstrapped. It's still, it's basically two or three guys working on it nonstop. Uh, and it feels fun. It feels exciting to, to be building something. And I think there's a long way to go on it. So check it out. <laughs> and uh, I, hopefully it'll be, it'll be a thing soon. Yeah, we'll be sure to link all that up. Last question before the collector's gene rundown. You've had a lot of great accomplishments in your life and, and hats off to you truly. What has collecting done for you and how important is it to you in your personal life? It's a really good question. I mean, I think like the idea of collecting provides a foundation for what Houdinki is, you know? Uh, and so in that regard, it's remarkably important. In golf and in, in on the fair game side of things, like we're not collecting objects in most cases, although that is a burgeoning aspect of it. Uh, you're collecting experiences, you know? You're collecting journeys with friends and rounds with with college, you know, best friends and roommates and all that. And so I think the idea of like amassing memories or amassing, you know, uh, objects in, in the case of Houdinki is a really compelling thing because everything is tied to a story. And look, there, there is the financial gain side of it, which is unfortunately more prevalent now than ever, uh, you know, thanks to the Bloombergs of the world and the Wall Street Journals saying that like, you know, buy Rolex now, it's guaranteed to be worth more. We found that not to be true, of course. But for me, you know, again, as I said, like this, I'm just looking at there are four watches on my desk right now. I can tell you the stories of all four of them. One of them, the first one, is my 3940G that was, not this one, but the model was worn by by Philippe Stern, Thierry's father, for, for many, many years. It's kind of considered the quintessential Patek Philippe, really undervalued watch. I bought it for myself when I graduated from journalism school at Columbia as the gift to myself that nobody would ever buy me. And I said, like, I really fucking, I always wanted to go to Columbia in undergrad. I didn't get in as an undergrad. I did get in for grad student. Uh, and I said, fuck, like, I just achieved something. I want the thing that I want. And I spent every fucking dollar I had to buy it. And that 3940G will be with me forever. I bought it used because it was already discontinued at the time. It's engraved on the back with my name and the year I graduated. That means a whole hell of a lot. My wife wore this watch for an event last night. Uh, then we look at my, my Rolex, which is the white gold Pepsi. I think people forget that for a good number of years there, there were no Pepsi bezel steel GMTs. They only did them in white gold. This was purchased in 2015 when that was the case. Uh, this watch uh, was the result of uh, John Mayer and I both celebrating something. I had just effectively closed my first round of funding for Houdinki. He had just signed on to be the lead guitarist in a band called Dead & Co. Uh, and we were in New York City and we said, fuck it, let's go to the, the Rolex Boutique on 5th and see what they have. They had two white gold Pepsi GMTs and we both bought them. Uh, and that, you know, that's an amazing memory and uh, also engraved on the back. Then we have 5170P, uh, which I'll be totally honest with you, does not have a sentimental story tied with it. It's a, it's a hand-wound chronograph from Patek Tiffany signed. Sometimes he just liked the thing. And in this case, I just fucking love this thing. There's no story, you know, there's no great sentimental moment, you know, tied to this watch. I just love it. And I wear it a lot and it brings me a lot of joy. Uh, and then finally, uh, uh, I've got this white gold, cannabis gold rather, Speedmaster, which I bought for my son uh, who was born just five months ago. You know, the Omega Speedmaster plays a really important role in my history and the, the history of my company. And so when, you know, my grandfather gave me one, I have one that's very special to me. I wanted my son to have one as well. Uh, and so I bought the white gold 3861, um, which is a very special and actually very, very rare watch. Um, and so, you know, again, uh, you know, collecting these things are really three out of four of them are collecting incredibly important moments in my life. Uh, and so that is, is super powerful to me. Love it. Couldn't have said it better. I think not a lot of people will look into the tangential side of collecting, you know, the stories behind things, the experiences, the uh, memories and all that sort of stuff. And those are what makes the collecting moments as special as they are. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's wrap it up with the collector's gym rundown, Ben. You can answer these based on any of the collections you have, watches, cars, anything else. So what's the one that got away? One that got away. Oh man! Well, it's a car. It's a car. It's a uh, Alfa Romeo TZ1 that I had the opportunity to buy in 2020. For I mean, it cost a fortune. That would have been one that I would have to you know sell everything for. Ended up making an offer. It ended up going to a friend of mine who you know was a much more serious buyer than I was. He said, "If I ever sell it, I'll give you a shout." Last year, he said, "Hey man, 
I'm thinking of selling it. I'm buying something else. Do you want it? And I, again, still a fortune. Said, okay, maybe I can figure out the cash. Went out to drive it. And it was just a little bit too extreme for me. It was a real race car. And I just didn't think it fit into my lifestyle at this point. And again, being about to be the father of two, back then father of one. So that car, that particular VIN number, that particular TZ is, is definitely the car that got away. And maybe some, it ended up selling. It, maybe one day when I have more time and more money and more something, it might come back around. Uh, but that particular TZ one is for sure the car that got away. No question about it. What about the on-deck circle? So what's next for you in collecting maybe something you have your eye on, maybe an area you're focusing on? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I have like an area, but I can tell you the things that I have on order, <laughs> the things that that I like I'm excited about. So, you know, I'm I'm a dad now, as I've said about a hundred times, and very proud of that. But I like the 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 eccentric things that appeal to me are really different. So I used to own a GT3 Touring, the first generation, that I loved. But that car was bananas. I mean, it was so fast and so crazy. And I just like I, I drove the 992 GT3 and I found that to be just a little bit too extreme. And so, you know, as a vintage car guy, I was like, man, like the 911 that I actually like the most here is the Carrera T, which is the least powerful with a manual, but has a lot of the sport performance options, et cetera, on it, and is really designed for the purists. And Porsche themselves actually call it the only 911 designed for a purist. Uh, so I have a Carrera T on order that I'm incredibly excited about as, as I have a Taycan, you know, as I said, electric car as my daily, but the 911, I'm specking out to be my car. And I expect to own that car for a very, very long time. And that, that is compelling to me, you know, really taking the time to order it the way that I want it. You know, we'll probably do European delivery. So my wife and I can pick it up in Europe and have a nice vacation out of it. I'm very excited about that. Uh, And then in, in terms of watches, I've really been into AP. I think what they're doing with their RD series, the research and development series, the RD3 in particular, is just incredible. And it really, the RD3 spoke to me. I have the RD2 as well. The RD3 spoke to me in a way that no other Turbion wristwatch has ever spoken to me. A, and that I actually wanted it. And then B, that I wasn't embarrassed to wear it because like, it's, a, it's the jumbo case, the 15202 case or the 5402 or 1602, whatever you want to call it, 16202 um, case, but with a flying Turbion. And the, it was basically the idea of taking like, Imagine, I mean, it's like going back to like, you know, the cars that I love are like, imagine like an E39 M5, which looks like your dad's, you know, a, a, a mid 90s banker's car, but actually has a VA with a six speed, you know, and you know, the, the RD2 and RD3 is that it looks like a normal Royal Oak, but has a crazy self-winding flying tourbillon. I think AP is doing great stuff there. Uh, you know, Recep, Recepi, that I'm, you know, that's Holy Grail stuff. Hopefully I'll get one of those someday. Patek, of course. Langa, you know, some very special Langa. Their chronographs, I think, are still the best in the world. Yeah, I mean, again, I think in terms of like collecting, in terms of watch, like a watch or brand that I bought more than one of over the past few years, it would be AP. They find this way to to balance like cool slash hype demand, you know, like like what the what the rappers want and what the rock stars want and movie stars, whatever, with the ceramic stuff and whatever, whatever diamond covered here and there. But then they do a watch like an RD2, which is the, the super slim perpetual calendar, like show that watch to a watchmaker and they'll lose their mind. They will lose their mind. Yeah, they may not know what to do. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and I think that is what's really neat is like they are not messing around in terms of actual watchmaking as well as doing some cool shit with materials and putting it on famous people. What color did you do the 911 in? It's slate gray. Uh, I'm a slate gray guy. Uh, so I painted sample slate gray uh, with a bunch of special options uh, here and there. Um, it was the same color I did my GT3 Touring in. Um, you know, look, I mean, if you look at Houdinki Limited Editions, there's a lot of grays that are featured in that stuff. That That is certainly my, my color for sure. How about the unobtainable? So maybe it's in a private collection, a museum. It's just truly never coming to market. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know that it's never, you know, I mean, look, there's a lot that are like genuinely unattainable, like you know, any 250 LM or a GTO or, or all that. I, I can say that a car that was really compelling to me that I am nowhere near able to afford just came up at Gooding, which was that unrestored short wheelbase, which happened to be in gray, <laughs> yep. which was, you know, that like, if I could, I would for sure. Like that to me is one of the greatest cars of all time. Um, and that particular example, which I'd actually known about via a friend for a few years, uh, it was just incredible. I mean, really, that car in that colorway in that condition was just incredible. 
So if I hit the lottery or something like it, that would be right up there. Uh, there, there are more cars and watches that are kind of uh, tied to people. So Briggs Cunningham, which was an American entrepreneur uh, slash race car driver slash watch collector, somebody I've long been fascinated by. He had an Alfa Romeo uh, Giulietta Sprint Speciale that uh, is also gray and original condition. Uh, I tried to buy that a few years ago and was, uh, you know, I would say quickly shot down by the owner who you know, doesn't need to sell anything. Um, and then similarly, he had a Patek 565 uh, as well. And so, you know, a grand vision I've had would be driving that car with that watch, um, neither of which have, have been attainable to, to date. That is, uh, that would be true peak. Yeah, that would be. I have a highly specific, highly nerdy goal of, of driving that car with that watch, but it, it probably won't ever happen, and, and that's okay. The page one rewrite. So, if you could collect anything besides cars and watches, money, no object, what would it be? Probably for, uh, photographs. Uh, my dad was a photographer. Uh, I, I fancy myself a photographer to some degree. Um, I get it, you know, and I think and I, sometimes I'll go into like a, a contemporary art gallery or something. And I just like, I'll be honest, I just don't connect, you know, but with photography, I really do. And I can say, I like that. And here's why with paintings and sculptures, I, I, I'm a little bit more lost. Um, so probably photography would be, would be where I would go. How about the goat? Who do you look up to? in the collecting world there, who do you think is the greatest collector of our generation? Oh, that's, I mean, it's so complex. And watches, I mean, John Goldberger, who you, who you interviewed is right up there, no question. Uh, the, the, the passion and understanding and touch and feel is just remarkable with him. I mean, incredible. Um, yeah, I really don't know how you, how you beat, you know, his knowledge and experience and, and ownership. Yeah, it, it's scholarship, it's experience, it's, Willingness to share, which is very, very uncommon at that level, as I'm sure you know. Like, there's a lot of rich guys out there that have crazy shit. Some of them don't even know what they have. Those that do don't want to talk about it. Goldberger wants to talk about it. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's an expected answer, but he he remains numero uno in, uh, in, in my, my mindset for sure. Yeah, no doubt. The hunt or the ownership? It depends. I mean, like for a vintage watch or something like that, it's the hunt. For a contemporary watch with sentimental value, it's the ownership for sure. Like I, you know, for my 40th birthday, my wife got me a watch. Like she just went to a store and, or, you know, she, she called in a favor and got it. And like, like, I, I don't care. She didn't care about how she got it. Like she just knew that's what made sense for my 40th birthday and that's it. So generally speaking, it's the ownership for vintage stuff, uh, which again is more of a high, like, I view like my contemporary things, cars, watches, whatever, as like part of me and not assets like not like something i see in my balance sheet but just things that i love whereas vintage cars vintage watches i do view kind of as more uh investments and, and assets so in for when i'm talking about the assets uh, i do i do uh, prefer the hunt most importantly do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene yes i do uh, <laughs> i think as, as i've said Elsewhere on our own site and others, like, you know, I was collecting baseball cards and Marvel cards and baseballs and everything under the sun, you know, when I, when I could, uh, and it's just who I am. Like, it's just, again, like I'm a pretty understated, quiet guy. Uh, and it's a way for me to express myself that I think is, is really nice and like really personal, but is shareable to some degree, um, which, you know, I think is really important for, you know, for men that tend to live like insular lives. I think being able to express yourself in some way and share it with other guys in this case or girls uh, is important. So yeah, no, I, uh, I was definitely born with it and I'm very happy that I've expressed myself that way. Love it. Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, congratulations, most importantly, on uh, becoming a father twice over and everything that you have going on with Hodinkee and Fair Game and just always good to, to chat with you. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure and glad we could do it. All right. That does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio. 